welcome back to another over-enthusiastic episode of DSR Film New Podcast, where Mitch asked me to change what I say at the beginning, and I just did. So Woo-hoo! now it is a little bit different for you guys. You're not getting the exact same thing over and over and over and over again. Now, Mitch, we've been gone for a couple weeks here. What have you been up to, man? Uh, let's see. I went to Chicago. I was feeling sick for a while. Hey, have you ever been to Chicago? Yes, love Chicago. I finally got to see The Bean. Uh, been like a decade since I was in Chicago and never got to see The Bean. You know The Bean. Uh, the Browning. The Bean. What is The Bean? The the, the massive... Uh, uh, Are you talking about the stadium? That, no, the, no, 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 no. The, the statue that's in the middle of the park. Oh, and, the, the giant the, like uh, metal circle? Yeah. That's yeah, called that The one. Bean? They call it the Bean. It's actually got a different name, which is like Sky something. Yeah, I thought it was just an art piece with like a wacky name. I I never heard anybody refer to it as the Bean. I think it's in oh, their the like bean. big park area downtown. Yeah, the Monument Park for not Monument. I don't know. I think I it's a Millennial Millennium Millennial Park. Yeah, Millennium something like that. Yeah. There you go. It's a, I knew it was an M word. Two points for me for knowing it was an M word. <laughs> uh, but that's that thing is that is you. You haven't seen it, obviously, since the frown came on. You yeah. gotta go down and see it when you go to Chicago. Yeah, you, you know, people told me about it, and they're like, "You gotta go see this art sculpture piece. It's really beautiful." And then I just I went to that uh, restaurant that they insult you at instead, and uh... <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, there's a restaurant in Chicago where you go in, and the first thing they do is start making fun of you, and then they harass you throughout your meal. And you pay extra for that, and then they get up on tables and dance and sing and stuff. It's uh, right down the street from the Rainforest Cafe, if you're into that sort of touristy bit. Perfect. Sounds like fun. Sounds like the restaurant I went to in Disney, but that's a whole other story. So on my end, (laughs) we actually missed last week because uh, I was out selling. And by selling, I mean uh, my latest feature-length film, Shivers Down Your Spine, has been released to the world, and uh, so we're doing the film convention circuit in order to screen it, sell it, and sign autographs, and do panels about filmmaking, and so on. And the film actually sold really well. We're pretty happy. Uh, We sold out of everything we had in stock uh, by the middle of Saturday afternoon, and we're able to take the rest of the weekend off to go to the Mall of America in Minneapolis. So if you're into consumerism and massive malls, that's what we were up to. And I did want to talk just a little bit about the way we make money on films because a lot of people ask this question all the time. Hey, how do you make money on films? Okay, so the secret here is is not a distributor because if you're in the low budget to – to bottom tier market, uh, you're going to spend anywhere from you know nothing, which would be micro budget, all the way up to ten to twenty thousand dollars on your very extremely low budget film. But when you go to a distributor, they're not going to offer you offer you very much, and a lot of times they'll lock in the rights for you know up to eight years, and you won't have access to your film as far as uh, video on demand and so on. The most profitable way I've found to get rid of my feature-length films once they have made it out into the world is actually to do the convention circuit. And you have to fly out to these locations and you have to do long weekends with your film, but 
by the time we're done with this year's round of film festivals and uh, conventions, we'll probably move through like six or 7,000 copies of our film. And, you know, it's not something you're going to get rich at, but, uh, you know, at $10 a pop, it pays for all the travels and it pays for the film and puts a little bit of extra cash in your pocket to make the next film. So there is my secret for low-budget filmmakers. In the old days, you could just go straight to a distributor and get, you know, thirty or 40000 for your low-budget or micro-budget film. Uh, today, it's not so much the case anymore. When you say conventions, do you mean, in your particular case, are you talking like horror conventions of some kind? Yeah, since Shivers Down Your Spine is a horror film, uh, we find all of the horror-themed conventions. So uh, there's Texas Frightmare Weekend, there is Crypticon in Minneapolis, which is the one we just attended. There's Horror Hound, uh, various other horror-themed conventions throughout the Midwest and along the West Coast because they're inherently cheaper to fly to and uh, hit all of those conventions. And you basically you pay to get a booth, you show up with your films, and you sell as much as you can while you're at each one of those conventions. Uh, in general, because we don't really pay a lot of our actors and actresses uh, to give them like sort of a, a thank you. We pay for them to fly out with us to different events so that they can kind of have the experience, sign autographs, and you know, be a sort of pseudo-famous person for a day. That's cool. And so when you say sell like for 10 bucks, you're talking about a DVD. Yeah, right. DVDs are 10, Blu-rays are 15, and you got to work on a spiel because when you have to chuck, you know, 1,000 DVDs at a convention or 500 DVDs at a convention, you really have to just, every person that walks by needs to buy one. Otherwise, you need to reach market saturation at every single convention in order to make it economically feasible. Now, the sad thing is um, we did actually work out the hourly rate for the number of DVDs we can get to a convention and sell and what the number of people working behind the booth get paid, and it's somewhere in the range of like $4 an hour. So not yeah. super profitable. Um, don't ever expect to get rich if you're making independent, low-budget feature-length films. But... Definitely a fun experience, really enjoyable to go out with uh, the crew, and it's a great party night afterwards. I'm still recovering a couple days later. <laughs> Sounds like a, a real blast. Do you do you ever get a chance to actually show the movie on a screen, or do you have the ability to do something like that? Oh, yeah. Most of these uh, conventions have a screening room, or they work in conjunction with a movie theater, and so it is an opportunity uh, if that's something you're interested in, to see your film, if it's selected on a f on a full screen with an audience and kind of see how the audience reacts and stuff. Uh, that's pretty fun. Uh, in general, for the cast and crew, we do screenings uh, at a historic theater in Grand Island, Nebraska, that allows us free reign of the theater. Uh, and it's, really? you know, it's it's called the Grand. It's one of those old, you know, 30s and 40s uh, theaters that was built in the you know, the Majestic, the Grand, all, all those right. uh, very epic names for theaters. Uh, so we get to do that. And when we get a final cut, I send it over to the guys in Nebraska, and they actually screen it with a large audience and uh, tell me how things work and then recommend edits and cuts throughout the film as we work on it. So 
That's what's been eating up most of my time for the last uh, three or four months, and uh, now I may disappear once in a while for the convention circuit. Uh, I might try and do some live shows from the sh- from the sh- uh, show floor, but uh, cool. we'll see how the internet holds up in those locations. Well, yeah, that's always the the question, but that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, why why is a little towny tiny town in Nebraska got uh, such an amazing theater? Uh, it's just how it worked out. But the, the cool thing about Nebraska, and this is my trade secret that I'm just going to throw out Uh-oh. there into the world. Uh, if you go to California or you go to any major metropolitan area like Chicago and you try to film somewhere, people will hand you a sheet and say, this is how much it costs to film here. Here's the permits you need, everything else. If you go to Nebraska and you say, I'd like to film here, they're like, oh my God, you would like to film here? That is great. We'll shut the store down for you. We'll kick everybody out. We'll bring in our employees and have them be extras for you. We're just so excited that you're coming to our place. And because of that, we've been able to film, uh, for example, one of the museums in Nebraska has an entire prairie town. And it's, you know, houses and everything. And they have period actors that that populate the town during the weekdays for, you know, tourists that come through. And wow. they basically populated the town and gave us free reign of that to shoot a Western. And that was, you know, free gratis. Uh, we uh, wow. promised to mention them uh, several times and uh, put them in flyers and things. But, you know, that, you can't <laughs> pay for that kind of, I mean, I couldn't yeah. afford that. That's, you know, millions of dollars to get a town built like that full of people. So that's one example. And there's a, several towns in Nebraska that are, are very good for filmmakers. And they will literally, as long as you present insurance for your shoot, they will shut down city blocks and allow you to take over for like a gunfight, any kind of, uh, wow. you know, action scenes. Uh, we've crashed cars before, you know, those sorts <laughs> of things like you can't get those in any other place. So, I mean, I don't I don't know what it is about Nebraska specifically, but because I film so much there, I kind of have a special place in my heart for that state. So, good job Nebraska. Hey, Nebraska. Yeah, awesome. it, it's a weird place too, by the way. Uh flat. Um, okay, enough about that. We got some news to cover before what? we get out of here. Oh, this is on. not story time, oh. Mitch. There's still a whole show on DJ's tiny tricks. <laughs> All right, on that note, guys, I think it's time for time for the news. Time for the news. First up on the list here is actually something I wanted to talk about that is probably going to affect a lot of filmmakers. Drones. Drones are being addressed finally by uh, the FFA uh. and or the FAA. And the Department of Transportation looks like they're going to implement regulations that require registration for most drones uh, coming down the line. Now, people have been up in arms about this and really worried that this is going to affect everybody right away. Uh, To be honest, they're putting a subcommittee together and they don't expect a report on what the recommendations are for registration until the end of November. And if you know anything about government, this is going to be very (laughs) slow. So expect results sometime in 2016 if we are lucky. Now, they are setting a threshold for registration for any drones that do not present a risk, and they're calling that the low safety risk of drones. So if you have a drone, and actually, you know what, there is no definition for whether yeah. or not your your item falls into that category, and that's what the committee is supposed to come up with. Mitch, what do you think about registration for drones? 
it's obviously, I don't know, obviously it's a bad word. It's something that was bound to happen, right? We knew it was coming. We've talked about it. We've encouraged it in some regards because there are plenty of safety issues. Uh, for example, I went to uh, Balloon Glow. Do you know what that is? A helium balloon or not a helium balloon, a hot air balloon. St. Louis has a balloon race. Okay, DJ is looking real. <laughs> I had no idea. Audio, you're, you're just missing out on so much because DJ is just like, what? Huh? <laughs> huh? Um, so the, you, you know Albuquerque has a balloon race. Yeah, I've been right? to the Albuquerque uh, um, Balloon Festival multiple times. So St. Louis has one that's... Like a baby version? Fun. Yeah. Little kid version? Oh, you're so cute. You got one. Yes. Well, see, you got to realize St. Louis is a tiny town. And it's like going to Chicago. It's like, holy cow, this is huge. <laughs> um, and we're losing our football team, which is a whole other story. But uh, <laughs> the balloon race is on a Saturday. And the Friday night before, they do what they call the balloon glow, where they, they fire up the balloons. And it looks really pretty to take photographs at night of all these balloons because there's, you know, they're lit up by the fires um well it was in it this year we went and it was too windy so they couldn't even do that but there was a guy flying a drone what over this yeah yeah and it concerned me because i could see it as we were walking up and i'm like oh my god this guy's flying over these hot air balloons and bless his heart he was doing the right thing when i got up to it I mean, this was a long way off. We had to walk a long way to get there. He was actually flying it over a tree just on the outskirts of the area where the balloons were. Okay. So he was being very safe by flying it not over a whole bunch of people. He was flying it over a large tree so that if it happened to fall directly down, <laughs> obviously – we know drones tend to often sometimes go sideways when they go wrong. So spinning blades he wasn't of death. Perfectly safe, but at least he was he was trying to be considerate and not fly over directly over a massive group of people. So I was I was very impressed with that guy. Two points for him. But to answer your question in a long-winded way, we obviously have concerns about safety with these devices and there are people that have been documented that have done some really stupid stuff. Now, are regulations going to solve that problem? People are still going to be stupid, right? Well, that's um, the thing that's interesting yeah. about this is they're actually, it's less about rec uh, regulations and more about registration. So they won't be able to get you into any category yet as far as whether you can use it in an area or whether you can't. Uh, they're still working on all those rules. This is just to collect your name, your information, your serial number off of your drone, and all the other bits and pieces so that when you do screw up, they can just find you specifically yeah. where you're at and come get you. And that part's a little strange. I mean, I guess it's not strange to me. It, it's, it's interesting. You know, they had the guy, what was that, uh, last year that – um, had a few drinks and then flew his drone over to the White House. You know, yeah. that sort of thing. You know, you do want to know when you find a drone laying on your roof who it belongs to and how the heck it got onto your house. But uh, as far as actually cracking down on where you can fly this and so on, uh, that's it doesn't seem like that's what this is about. This is more about 
punishment if sure. you screw up. Yeah. It's 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 sort of like the uh, gun regulations where you have to register your gun when you buy it, right? Uh, so we don't even know technically if this is going to be at purchase time. Will B&H have to register you when you buy the product, or is this a voluntary thing afterwards? We don't know, right? Well, and the other thing is uh, buying a drone right now, are you exempt? Because, you know, hundreds right. of thousands of people have drones already. They're flying quadcopters all over the place. And then you also come into the, the issue of building your own. Because, honestly, if you want to go out tomorrow and build a quadcopter, you're talking maybe a three or $400 investment. You buy the motors, you buy the batteries, you buy uh, three or four pieces of wood and strap them to a frame, and bam, now you can fly a camera up in the air. And with that sort of accessibility... How do you actually get people to register? And are those going to fall into the category of low safety risk? It's it's really murky water when you're trying to well, figure out how to do that. Yeah, the problem I had with the low safety risk is, huh? Um, isn't it potentially everything could be? I mean, you could you could have one of those tiny ass little drones that's you know like three or four inches. And if you happen to fly it in the front of a 747 and it gets sucked into the engine, isn't that a safety issue? Uh, is that, you know, it's, I don't, they're going to have a real problem with that low safety risk issue, if you ask me. Anyway, this is coming down the pike, guys. Uh, be aware of it. Just something very interesting to think about. Uh, we yes. won't spend too much more time on it, but... Make sure you check out the regulations as they come out. Uh, there are comment periods on all of these, and your input does matter. Also, fly responsibility. Yes. If you are a hobbyist, I'm sure uh, many of you guys in clubs and so on are very good about where you fly and how you fly. But if you just bought one off the shelf because you saw it on YouTube and thought it was fun, don't be a jerk, guys. Don't be a jerk. Hey, speaking of that, uh, you probably don't know Olivia Speranza. Nope, don't know anybody, man. <laughs> of course you don't know who that is. Olivia was doing uh, video reports a long time ago, and she interviewed me once at NAB. Long story short, she uh, she found something yesterday. I found it on Twitter. Uh, they're actually, they did the very first quadcopter races a couple of weeks ago in a stadium over a course. They have a course. Oh, yeah. And it's pretty cool. I'll, I'll, I'll find the link and I'll post it in the show notes. Uh, but so, so here's a totally new venue of racing quadcopters. Man, that would actually cool. be interesting to see. You make one mistake with a bladed item like that and it just explodes. <laughs> uh, it, it, and all of the guys that were flying have the visual, the doing it with the goggles. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, it looks really kind of strange because here you're having some races. And you got some guys and gals sitting over in a, a corner of the stadium, and they're just sitting there with their little visors and you know controller, and then the drones are all out on the stadium, zipping around, going through tunnels and stuff. It's kind of cool, but it's just it's kind of really strange to have the operators over in the corner. Huh. I don't know. It's it's kind of strange, but I'll 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 find that video and post it in the show notes. 
All right, rolling on down the line here. This is actually something Mitch and I have kind of talked about before. And from what I understand, Mitch may have pulled the trigger on this one. This is the light L16 camera. And this was the camera that we were kind of wondering exactly how it works. Multiple sensors, multiple lenses, uh, variable focal lengths, all in something similar to the size of a cell phone package. Now, Stu over at ProLoss.com was able to get into the San Francisco office of the light L16 team and take a closer look at what the camera does and how it works. Mitch, first, before we dive into some of the information we found out about this thing, what do you think about this camera and why did you pull the trigger on it? Uh, well, first of all, do you know what Stu's last name is? It's Isn't it Mouskowitz? <laughs> See, I was, I was just dying. I love you, man. You know I love you. Mashowitz. Mashowitz. I always mispronounce that one. There you go. <laughs> Stu's awesome guy, man. I, I love Stu. So I'm, I'm impressed that you know Stu. Two points for you for knowing somebody that I didn't think you would know. But you know, Stu- actually, one thing before we dive in, Stu wrote a book when I was a kid uh, called the, I think it was called like the uh, Digital Rebel or something like that. And in the 90s, it was the a premier guide that you went and bought in order to learn how to shoot on DV tape back in, in that time frame. So I've known about him and read his stuff for many, many wow. years. And that, that, yeah, that was, uh, that was published way, way back in the day. And before they even got to uh, Adobe CC, that was when Premiere and After Effects were still in their infancy, and he had an entire CD-ROM in the book that had special Why? effects that you could install into After Effects in order to accomplish, you know, bullet shots and and so on. One of the first sort of like indie release type of things, way, way, way back early in my filmmaking career. So. Huh. That's that's exactly why I recognize the name immediately. Now, sorry, continue on talking about this L16 camera. I'm I'm impressed, TJ. I'm always impressed with your vast knowledge. It just blows me away. So I apologize if I'm teasing you about your names and your pronunciation sometimes. But trust me, I love you. <laughs> uh, I It was one of those things. The L16 is one of those things that I typically don't spend, right? And, I, and I'm still pausing. My finger pushed the button, A, because I found a $200 additional bonus coupon, which is no longer valid. And B, I'm just really intrigued by the concepts of putting multiple sensors together. When we talked about this before, the day that we talked about on the show, and I was like, oh, man, I just, I'm just going to have to try this. Now, of course... I can still back out. So we're hoping to get over at this website called. We're hoping to get our hands on one of those cameras before they actually start delivering. Um, I have pinged them several times about being on the list. And they're like, we're not even putting together that list until next spring sometime. Uh, But I'd like to get my hands on it. But it's just unique enough that I thought I, I didn't fall for. The Lytro cameras, I didn't really feel like those were the kind of thing that really appealed to me because you had to have 
the special viewer in order for people to pick the focus and all that kind of stuff. Uh, this one just really sort of appeals to my quirky kind of interest level. And so especially uh, the week later when I found this article from Stu, uh, I was just like, okay, if Stu really thinks this thing is blow away cool, although he still has some reservations and didn't order one, uh, but his ability to sit down and and uh, elucidate, there's a big word for you, his <laughs> thoughts on the the L16 and how cool it really is just really kind of appealed to me. So I'm still curious. I, I still have the ability to back out if I if I panic, but I figured for for a thousand bucks as opposed to the sixteen hundred that it's gonna eventually be, I could I could get my hands on one and probably resell it for twelve to fourteen if I didn't like it. Ah, my old resale plan. I don't know. I don't know whether I'm gonna make money on it or not, but it just looks very interesting and I still very very intrigued by it. Now, there's some interesting stuff that's come out because of this interview. And uh, first of all, this is going to be made by Foxconn, the cell phone manufacturer. So we're going to be assembling a camera in the same line as a cell phone production plant. Uh, that's a very interesting way to work on this. Another thing that's really interesting is that the mirrors actually tilt on this, and it's a tiled uh, format in order to get the major megapixels out of this camera. So they are combining images from multiple sensors and tiling those together in order to create that high megapixel count. Uh, the other thing that is interesting is that 4K streaming from four or more of these sensors isn't possible because of the bandwidth requirements. So they are only going to use individual sensor sites for 4K video. Uh, the last thing that I found in here that was fairly interesting is that they create a depth map using those multiple cameras. So you will be able to select a little bit of your focus range based on the tiling of your images. Now, I got a little fishy, not fishy, maybe uh, a little iffy in understanding how they equate the focus range of this to an f1.2 lens right mitch did you get anything out of that that i didn't get no i think i was basically still very confused and and so was Stu, and and because they didn't really provide any decent really narrow depth of field shots in the previews and so no i i didn't gather anything out of it i'm still curious uh i mean it the the caveat was there that they're still working on software. So, and they've got time to do that, but they, they assure Stu and us that it's going to be really cool. Well, and so. uh, one last thing while we're talking about the focus and I'll show this on screen so you guys can see this. This is the only example really I've seen of the depth of field in action. And it's simply a sort of software slider that you move up and down and you can see the background goes out of focus and comes back into focus again. Uh, and that's over at ProLoss.com. So uh, check out the link in the show notes to see a little bit more and read the entire article. Very interesting camera tech. Uh, it will be interesting to see how it turns out. I did not pre-order. This is not one that jumped out at me and screamed, DJ must have this camera. But, you know, 
Uh, definitely cool. like to see stuff like this. Smaller is better. Now, moving on from uh, the medium price camera to the extreme price camera, we have the announcement of the Leica SL601. This is a $7,500 camera that uh, people suspect uses what? Panasonic uh, image technology as well as some processing in the background. Now, if I remember correctly, and I am not a Leica aficionado, so if I get this wrong, just uh, throw me under the bus, people. Feel free to correct me. But hasn't Leica in the past used uh, Sony sensors and uh, some of Sony's back-end technology in their cameras in order to create it, and they they work and focus kind of on the body itself? Is, is that right? I don't know. <laughs> You're asking me? Uh, oh, okay, man. we're asking the internet. I don't know if anybody's watching that will know that answer. Um, and, and a small side note there, um, I forgot about this article, but Canon Rumors had an article the other day that they think that uh, Canon's going to start buying more sensors for their bigger bodies with from Sony. Really? Yeah, we ought we ought to read that article and and uh, think about that one. Um, so Sony's becoming a sensor monster, right? Yeah they they have spun off their uh, sensor and imaging section of the company into its own little fiefdom. And that section is doing very, very well and is producing, I think, what was the, the last word? It was like one-third of the sensors used in the world were produced by Sony. So that's a major slice for a single company to have. And honestly, their sensor tech is really good. Back to the Leica SL, though. This $7,500 camera offers up 4K shooting at super 35mm crop. It's a full-frame camera. It also has a pretty astounding 4-megapixel electronic viewfinder, which is, is very interesting. And the form factor design and layout is very minimalistic and sort of stylish. Mitch, do you think this camera is worth $7,500? Well, you're asking you and me, I don't think. There's got to be a market for it. Um, there are people like you from Planet 5D. You've heard of us, right? I have. Planet 5D. Um, yeah, tons of plugs. Uh, Hugh went to Photo Plus last weekend, which was in New York City, and he lives near there, so he gets to go to the fun stuff. And he sat down with or stood up with one of the guys from Leica, and Hugh is like, oh, just drooling over this camera because Hugh has been a Leica nerd for a long, long time. Uh, he still doesn't think that he's going to pay for one, which <laughs> leads me to wonder how many of these they're actually going to sell. Because, I mean, it's not only is, is it $7,800, was it, for the body? $7,500 for the body, uh, $6,000. Thousand nine hundred euros, I believe, in uh, Europe. So super expensive, yeah. like the price of a used car. And and they were pimping two lenses that they're developing specifically for this camera. Did you see that bit? Yeah, those are four thousand and six thousand, I think, respectively. So uh, it, you're talking like you could buy a Kia <laughs> for yeah. the price of this and a lens. And it was a f two eight to f four, I believe. Uh, that, uh, 
that's crazy. I, I know Leica makes premium products, but man, I, I almost feel like this is the this is the Apple markup where the, <laughs> it's not the stuff inside; it's the design, folks. It's the design. Yeah. Well, Hugh was really lusting for it, but you know he's not going to pull out his wallet either. Um, I mean, if you, I mean, you put $7,500 down for the camera and you want to buy one of those lenses. So now you're talking 15 grand, right? Definitely. With the $6,000 lens. I'm like, uh, no, thank you. I can buy a lot of little cameras for that amount. So I'm certainly not going to be buying one, but. Man, at that price, you could, you could basically pick up a set of, of lower price cinema primes and and then rent a camera and still come out ahead compared yeah. to this guy and now it's it's a really interesting camera as far as design goes and the fact that it's a, a full frame camera kind of does fit in between their medium format and their lower line so that's good but at the price, there are so many full-frame cameras available, and you know the styling may not be as good, but the image quality, 24 megapixel, you can get that out of a 5D Mark III. You can get that out of the 5DS. You can get that out of the Sony A7 series. Yep. Why would you come to the Leica camera if it's not just for the name and the design? And then the lens selection, I, I know people will say, well, there's tons of Leica lenses out there, and that's absolutely true, but how many autofocus Leica lenses are out there available for you to use with this particular camera? I know you can adapt and, and so on, but uh, most of those are manual focus, and they say, well, this is for photographers. Well, that's fine, but I don't know very many photographers anymore that are patient enough to manual focus as they're shooting stills and so on. I, I do you know any? Because I, I can't no. think of any off the top of my head. It, we've all become <laughs> autofocus junkies, and yeah. using manual focus is just like, ah, why would I do that? It's so much work. Why? Absolutely. Well, they're obviously, that's my favorite word today, apparently, obviously. I mean, you can buy a Porsche, right? You and I wouldn't buy a Porsche. That's true. But there's obviously a market for a Porsche and Lamborghinis and everything else. So, there's a market for this. People will buy it, but it's not you and me, and it's probably not anybody that's watching this show because most of those people are watching because of you, the fascinating DIY guy who cranks all this stuff together and knows all the internals and builds his own computers and everything else. So, I mean, we had the same conversation over at Planet 5D about the XC10 this week because we wrote an article about the XC10 from Canon. And I let... Brett write the article, and Brett was like, oh, this camera sucks. Um, you remember the XC10, right? Yeah, the XC10's a very disappointing 4K camera with a one-inch sensor. It, it did not bring any love to my heart when the camera was announced and I saw the form factor. It's just But, silly. again, it's not designed for you and me. Canon's designed it for a different kind of market. And we had one reader who wrote a very long, eloquent uh, comment that he ended up selling his GH4 and bought the XC10 and absolutely loves it for what his needs are. So my point is that although some of us tend to poo-poo cameras because they don't fit our particular needs, there are 
Canon and Leica are making these cameras because they know there is a niche that will absolutely love what they're producing and they're, they're making money at it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's like the Lamborghini and the Porsche and everything else. Somebody's going to buy it. I think the uh, Leica is something that they don't have to sell a major number in order to bring profit into the company. Uh, You look at the actual material build. It is a very nice design. Everything looks really elegant. It's it's got a beautiful uh, EVF, but if you price out all of the individual components, we're probably talking in the range of $1,600 to $3,000 max. So the profit margin on these is is fairly substantial compared to something that's sort of been... uh, commoditized like a Canon 6D or a even a 5D Mark III has gotten to the point where you're kind of pushing down the price to what last time I saw a 5D Mark III for sale was like $2,000 or less I mean at that point they're not making a ton of money on that so the there you don't have to sell massive amounts you just have to sell a few and make a lot of money off of each one so well that goes that goes back to everybody blasted Boeing when when we built a $30,000 $30,000 toilet for the space shuttle. Uh, you know, it costs money if you're going to only deliver a small quantity, right? It's it's higher manufacturing costs, higher design costs, everything. So when you get to the volume things, like, you know, Canon, if, if Canon was only going to sell 50,000 5D Mark III's, they wouldn't have started out at 3000 bucks. They would have started at double or triple that. So volume definitely matters and you're making a very good point that Leica has a quote high markup but when you're only selling 10,000 of them and lord knows I don't know how many they're going to sell but you got to charge more in order to make any kind of money on them. It's kind of the uh, Fuji marketing scheme where they have those beautiful little rangefinder looking cameras that sell for uber amounts of money and celebrities wear them around as a fashion statement I right. will never have the gold iWatch because <laughs> I am just not that rich. Very true. Now, very moving true. on to something that's very affordable and sort of, well, I'd say more than sort of interesting. Definitely interesting. Unfortunately, uh, I couldn't get it last night to play around with it. This is, and I'll tell you right now, this is linked directly to uh, Planet 5D because I got this from Planet 5D. This is the RoboCam. It is a controller that allows you to control multiple... Uh, cameras, and it has a list of Panasonic cameras that it's uh, associated with from a laptop or desktop computer. Now, I tried to get this. I don't know if it's legitimate or not, but uh, my PayPal locked me out as soon as the transaction (laughs) tried to go through and said that the fraud was being uh, perpetrated. Uh So I will have to call PayPal tomorrow in order to, or tonight, to, to get that sorted out. So I don't actually know if this works. I saw the video. Mitch, do you know more than I do about this? Because, uh, it looks really cool, but it's like, is this vaporware? Is this real? Uh, no. Unfortunately, I don't know anything more about it than you do because Karen found the article. Bless her heart. Um, and I know what you know based on this. You probably know even more because you tried to buy the damn thing. Um, it's interesting because it is only supporting Lumix cameras, right? So it's not. So they're, they're tying into Panasonic firmware somehow in order to manage these because it's not for canon it's not for other stuff right so panasonic uses the same wi-fi protocol throughout their line of cameras that have 
a built-in Wi-Fi for remote control via a phone or a tablet. So my LX100 and my GH4 use the exact same app, the same protocol and everything to access those. And they're most likely taking advantage of that in order to get into them. Now, the issue you'll find using your cell phone or a tablet, something like this, is that it eats up battery life very fast because, A, you're streaming via Wi-Fi, and B, you have a limited amount of battery, and then obviously your screen's staying on and so on. So it's like the maximum use of battery out of a tablet or a phone. And that's not horrible. It works great if you're just shooting short things, but if you're shooting something that's going to last more than 20 or 30 minutes, it gets sort of frustrating uh, changing out phones or hooking up new devices and so on. And the other thing, it doesn't allow you to record or control or operate multiple cameras. So you're tethered to one camera. If you want another one, you have to grab, I don't know, another tablet like this guy right here and run two of them. So, you know, look at me here having multiple devices, trying to run multiple cameras simultaneously. The attraction with this particular bit of software is that it actually allows you to run up to four cameras on a single Wi-Fi network. So if if it does in fact work, which I have yet to test uh, because of uh, the PayPal issue, this would allow me to come into a shoot, set up two cameras for an interview, set my laptop down, look at both shots, line them up, set focus on both cameras, and then hit record on both cameras simultaneously. And that is a very attractive option. Uh, the other thing that would be great for something like this is if you want to use something like the LX100 and set that around the room as a sort of a cheap small camera that you can get into places that you couldn't normally stand. You could set two or three of those up, and as your character, person, whoever you're filming moves around and interacts with something, say you have some displays that you need to do hands-on with, you could have one camera actually following them around with an operator, and you can just activate recording on all the other cameras and set their focus points, and they can go through the frame, and one button controls them all. That is really nice. Now... If it works, that is really nice, and I, I put that caveat in there. I've never had my PayPal account locked out for a malicious activity before, so I'm kind of nervous that this isn't legitimate. I don't, I don't know for sure. Um, again, this is not accusational, just my personal experience, but if anybody's used this, man, I would love something like this for my Panasonic cameras. Uh, Mitch, do you have any Canon equivalents that you can think of that would give you this sort of control? No, there. I have not seen anything in the Canon market that would control anything like this. Uh, and typically, they're going through the USB ports. Yeah. Because uh, there aren't a whole lot of Wi-Fi options with Canon cameras. Uh, I mean, obviously, newer ones do. But um, the ability to zoom as well on this tool, I'm watching the video again, because uh, you didn't mention zooming. So, you, I mean, if you had an operator sitting at a laptop, uh, you know, you talk, You mentioned doing a one-person, multiple-camera shoot, but if you had somebody sitting there, you you could actually control four cameras and do zooms at particular spots, or if you needed a close-up of whomever, the operator could sit there and, and do that for you, which is kind of impressive. The uh, zoom feature uh, is limited to the cameras with built-in lenses, if you look through the list, uh, uh, mm-hmm. because you can't uh, electronically control the zoom on the GH4 from a lens attached, you can only control the focus point. But that right. is still pretty cool. And Can or uh, Panasonic does have a couple of cameras in their lineup that are super crazy zooms that go from like 24 to 400. So 
you know, that would be very sexy as well. I, yeah. I can think of many. This is one of those things. Once you get it in your hands, you're gonna be like, oh, I could use it for this. What? Yeah. And then you're looking right. at something, you're working on it, and you're like, wait, this would be perfect. It, it's like a, a Swiss Army knife of tools. Plus, man, so much easier than setting up an HDMI switcher or something like that or a, a head in order to check multiple cameras simultaneously. Uh, if, you've, if you've ever had to work on a multicam shoot with a, a bunch of cabling all over the oh, – just it's <laughs> awful. It's awful. Or you could even use it to control your GH4 if you want to do a webcam, right? Oh, yeah. That wouldn't be a bad idea. Uh, the other thing to note, and this is not to do with this particular – program or the Panasonic GH4 but uh the new some of the newer cameras now are offering up built-in Wi-Fi and I'm not talking consumer grade cameras I'm talking like the new JVC JG300 I believe is the model number oh, yeah. uh, that guy has built-in Wi-Fi with a, an open access IP address that if you want to run and control multiple cameras, you just type in the IP address to the camera, you'll make sure it's logged into your network, and bam, you can access three or four of these cameras simultaneously from a browser interface without any external software or anything. And that is really nice. It's it's not that hard for them to put a, a Wi-Fi chip into these cameras. The markup and price and the extra bit of control, you're talking maybe 10 or $15 in added value to the <laughs> item. And man, that, unless you're talking about Canon. Yeah. Unless you're talking about Canon, once you add Wi-Fi, that better be six or $800 buddy. And, uh, you can only Sorry. use it when you're taking photos because nobody needs it during video at all. That's at right. all. Oh, no way. Don't get started on that one. <laughs> Sorry. So, so RoboCam, check it out. If you guys uh, have success with it, I would love to hear your stories and anecdotes about using that particular software. I will continue to try one more time, and if it uh, flags me again, I am just going to abandon the idea and look for something else. But very cool concept. Now, moving on, I don't normally talk much about Nikon, and that's because there isn't usually a lot of Nikon news. Sorry, Nikon shooters, but... Here we do have a little update to the D10, or the D810, excuse me. The D810 is getting firmware C1-10. This update fixes audio static when using HDMI output, and this also fixes some shutter failure that they're having and adds start and stop recording controls to the D810. Now, this camera was kind of the competitor to the 5D mark three at the time of its release and i haven't really heard a ton about the d810 since then mitch you know anybody that's shooting with a, a nikon d810 i have thousands upon thousands of readers over at planet no i don't <laughs> uh you know especially for video there aren't that many people that are shooting nikon stuff for video it just turns out that it didn't work well now, did I really say that out loud? There are some people that are shooting Nikon, but I mean, you know, I've done polls of Planet 5D readers, and the number of people shooting Nikon for video is, you know, like two percent. So they don't even show up to NAB anymore to, with any significant video stuff. I mean, they're there, but they're not. Anyway, sorry, Nikon. It's kind of unfortunate, but, man. Uh, having com competition in the market is a good thing, and 
It yeah. used to be neck and neck. Nikon would release something, and then Canon would have to release something better and back and forth. And now it's like, oh, hey, here's Sony, and here's Blackmagic, and here's these other companies, and they're moving forward. And these two uh, used to be behemoths in the market are now falling behind and sort of just hanging out in the background. And well, Nikon especially is very – it's unfortunate because yeah. they their kit is – is very nice. The build of Nikon cameras is, is is very good, and low light performance is also very good. It's it's been a major quandary for those of us reporting on stuff like this for a long time. Why? I mean, it was at NAB. Um, I think it was three years ago, maybe four years ago. They were really wanting me to you know pimp up stuff and hey, come on, let's report on Nikon because we're really doing some great stuff with video. And the next year is like crickets. And the year after is like crickets. Uh, and one of those years, they didn't even show up. So it's 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 a quandary. I don't know why. They were the first ones with the DSLR that did video. I mean, they started the revolution. Right, they beat Canon to the market. Yeah, wasn't that the D ninety? I believe was the yeah. the first right. video shooting DSLR. But that one was plagued with issues, if I remember correctly. You do remember correctly, and it only shot seven twenty. It did not shoot ten eighty, which was their downfall. I mean, if if it had shot ten eighty, they would have killed potentially could have killed the market. But they released it with only seven twenty, and nobody wanted to do seven twenty. They wanted. 1080 and and so canon came out and vincent did the video and off we ran and everybody's like okay nikon what's your next move and it took forever for them to get 1080 they still have jello issues right everybody still yeah. talks about jello with the nikons so i don't know i don't understand it uh, it's good to see they're putting out updates and firmware i applaud them for that but why they didn't go after the film market, I have no clue. Yeah, the D800 and D810, the predecessor, or er, predecessor, the predecessor was the 800. Ah, just don't worry about the predecessor word. I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> both of those cameras, I believe, are 36 megapixels. So they were kind of pushing yeah. the high megapixel count before Canon jumped into those waters. Uh, they are very affordable. You can get a D810 and a D800 for somewhere in the range of 1600 to $2,000. So, you know, if you do need high megapixel stills for some sort of uh, production or print application, I mean, there's still a contender in that market. And for photography, you know, a lot of people swear by Nikon glass. And I, I know a few professionals that continue to hold out in the Nikon camp as far as photography is concerned yep. because the image oh, quality yeah. is is very good from Nikon lenses. And you'll see that in the price. Uh, Nikon lenses are generally more expensive and hold a little bit more value than Canon lenses. And that's because Nikon makes good glass. So yep. maybe we could talk Nikon into making glass for multiple bodies. They could become the next uh, Sigma or Tamron. That would be very sexy. And that and that was a lot of their downfall, wasn't it? I mean, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm making it sound like Nikon is dead. No, but... they're not. Anyway, let's move on. Sorry, All right, uh, for more update, check that out if you're interested. If you're a Nikon shooter, uh, sorry that we don't have more Nikon news on a regular basis. I know a number of you have contacted me many times. And you know who you are about uh, covering more Nikon. <laughs> so 
This last thing on the list here is actually kind of fun, sort of interesting, a bit weird. It is a chair. Now, not just a chair. We've talked in the past about ergonomic uh, desktops. This is Altwork and uh, their $5,000 chair. I think it's on pre-order for $3,900. Allows you to sit, stand, and or lay down to work on photos, video, whatever you want. Uh, sort of an interesting concept here, and I'm going to roll over to the Petapixel article, and you can see some of the positions that we have. Here is the comfort laying down, fall asleep at work position. Here is the sit, businessman needs to be pushed around by his minions position. Here is the standing desk, if you need a standing desk. And some more laying down, and there's a video on this. Mitch, you've been trying alternative methods for uh, working at home from your office. What do you think? Is is this something you would be willing to try? If they're willing to send me one, absolutely. Um, the problem is I don't have space in my office for something like this. Well, if unless I get rid of my desk. Uh, I, there are a couple of things that I've found as potential issues, right? Um Number one, the design appears, and I didn't investigate every option they have on their website, but the design appears to only work if you're using a laptop. It has, and they demo it with an Apple monitor and a MacBook, or a MacBook, depending upon how you enunciate. Um, so if you are a DJ and have a large desktop or me, like I have an iMac, how does that fit in the play? Um, obviously I, the iMac can be mounted, so maybe you could do an iMac there, but then you don't have the laptop. And so can you do multiple monitors with it? Uh, well, the other, the other thing here is, uh, is actually umbilical cords. Notice down here that his monitor is running, but do you see any actual, uh, cables coming out from the bottom? I mean... Does this have a battery bank hidden in it? And then the fact that it's on wheels and kind of makes you feel like you could be pushed around as you work uh, is kind of misleading because you got to power your freaking uh, monitor. That that is a good question. If you look at the, I don't know, I don't know, scroll back up a little bit. That image right there, the top one, you see the cables go down the arm. And underneath him, there are cables where you're pointing, which goes into what looks like a battery. Ah, there you go. So that could be where the power is. I mean, obviously, the chair moves. And you're right. There isn't a cable leading over to the wall. So there would have to be a battery. I mean, the chair moves not forwards and backwards because those wheels don't look like... I mean, you you have to have your minion push you. Uh, But... (laughs) Uh, but it does, you know, like the legs curl underneath, which I thought was pretty cool. So that when you're standing or out of the way, I mean, they've, they've obviously gone through, I mean, if you watch the video, they've gone through bazillions of prototypes and they've been working on this for five years. Uh, so it's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, I just don't know that I would end up laying, I mean, it's a fascinating concept to be able to sit with your legs out instead of just sitting and, you know, with your legs straight down. Uh, so I, it, I'd be intrigued to see how it works. I have been doing my stand-up desk, which comes from Very Desk. Plug. 
and I enjoy being able to stand like I'm standing now. I feel very energized when I stand. Sometimes I get tired, so I end up sitting. And when I sit, I still sit on my exercise ball. Uh, so I do have the ability to do standing and sitting, but I don't have the ability to put my legs up. And I certainly have never tried to work laying back. Well, actually, we have. I mean, typically, some of us may take our laptop and lay back, but then you're trying to prop it up on your knees, right? If you're in bed or something, trying to yeah, prop trying it up. to use a trackpad laying on your back is very difficult on a laptop. Uh, a few times in the airport, when I'm worn out and still trying to accomplish some editing, you'll prop a backpack up and kind of set it on your lap and lean forward right. with your hands reached out, and it's just not very conducive to a good workflow. I would feel like if you had these in the office, people would fall asleep in them, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, hey, look over there. He's working, and he just turns his desk away from everybody else. You can't see his face, and turns out he's been sleeping. He's got a little pile of drool next to his face. Like, oh, that, well, I don't know. DJ, DJ, having worked in an office for 32 years, I can tell you I've seen plenty of people who can find a way to fall asleep at a normal desk sitting. Um, <laughs> anyway. However, I don't know if you if you particularly noticed that the gal that's laying down actually has a mouse. Yeah, and I saw the, that. The description says that they have a magnetized mouse so that it actually stays on the desktop even when you're going laying back and the the angle of the desk is vertical. For those of you listening on audio, you're screwed. You have no clue what we're talking about. So make sure you have clicked on the link to see what we're talking about uh, from the show notes. But now, obviously, had to do some kind of magnetization in order to have a mouse that works horizontally. Now, on a completely different note, and just something very cool, I want to show you guys real quick. And I forgot about this last time. I've been testing out this uh, Chrome-based uh, photo editing software, and if you'll notice, when I scroll over this, this little icon appears right here in the corner, any photo that I have in my browser, and this is, uh, I believe it's Polar, P-O-L-A-R-R. -R. You click on this, and suddenly you get an image editing application that brings that image in and gives you full fine detail and adjustment controls, uh, very similar to Lightroom on any photo that you find on the web. Uh, very interesting. Uh, here's actually a stills photo I took from the convention. Eh, maybe that's a little uh, too much. Uh, some boxes, you know, so on. But it's very interesting, and this also supports DNG files as well. Gives you resolution, cropping controls, and so on. Um, just a strange side note that I completely forgot about that I, I've been using and, and really enjoying. Uh, that's a free plug-in for your browser, uh, full editing capabilities, and, of course, DNG support for RAW. So as long as you convert in whatever program you're using to import, you're in good shape. Uh, I know well, this is not the desk-related thing, Mitch, but what do you think about a web-based photo editing app? Uh, it's awesome. uh, Well, my concerns are that it's going to be slow and laggy, but maybe it's not. But the second concern, well, go ahead. You're going to say something to the slow and laggy part. Oh, as far as the slow and laggy is concerned, uh, it does install onto your system and runs via a Chrome interface. So it's about two megs, but there isn't much in the way of access time. It, it opens faster than Lightroom. 
Although Lightroom, I will say, has been a mess <laughs> lately. Thank you, Adobe, <laughs> you jerks, for. We haven't even gone there yet. Oh have man, we? no, I, I haven't. I ranted a, a, a few episodes back about Adobe, but uh, it, it hasn't gotten any better. I actually ended up having to downgrade my Lightroom installation to uh, the previous version to to get some relief. Anyway, web-based. And, and, and they backed out of the import process in Lightroom that they had totally altered. And they said, oops, we'll go back to the way it was because there were so many people complaining about it. Yeah, that, that would... So that's, that's, yeah, why would you do that? And, anyway, the second concern I have, being a photographer who has been paid for photos, is... The if you have the ability to edit any photo from the web, is that just as one step closer to just totally obliterating people's concepts of copyrights? Uh, you know, we have people stealing photos bazillions of times now without giving the rights um, or any credit to the original photographer. And so, I don't know. It just kind of concerns me that we're going to get to the point where nobody respects copyrights. For me, it's actually, I use it in conjunction with uh, Google's Photos app. Mm -hmm. And because I can click on a photo and a lot of times you don't need to do anything really major. Maybe you need to crop or tweak or something like that. So I can open up Google Photos and then it gives me the Polar icon that I can click on on any of the photos. And if you've ever used uh, Google's Snapseed on your phone or their basic editing tools for Google Photos, they're not very good. Uh, they're very rough around the edges and don't right. provide you easy-to-use interface. Uh, the, the Polar app gives you basically f the, the regular stuff you'd expect out of Lightroom. You, know, you can control contrast exposure. You can do saturation. You can do uh, point correct with brush tools. You can crop. You can rotate. All, you know, all the stuff that you'd normally want to do, even if I want to add a little vignette to my photos and make it look like I shot it on a wide-angle lens. It, it, those things are handy to have. I'm not going to Instagram my photos into uh, Hipstermatic, you know, but uh, it, it's cool <laughs> to have uh, those basic editing functions. Uh, I do and and I'm, I'm proud of you for doing that on your own photos as opposed to somebody else's. So, yeah, so anyway. Don't steal photos, people. That's, uh, that's wrong. It's bad. And uh, especially if a guy came out and shot pictures of your children and you only paid a sitting fee and didn't pay the rest of your fees uh, in order to get the photos, uh, he has to eat too. And uh, yeah. even though it doesn't seem like work to push a button, uh, <laughs> editing photos and working in all the parts that are unseen do actually take quite a bit of time. Now, last thing on the list before we get out of here, Mitch, uh, this DIY star thing, you put this in the show notes. Tell me I more about it. That's what happens when you slide something in on DJ and he's not got time to read about it. It's a, it, I didn't know how much time we were going to have, and so I threw this in as an extra. But there's a guy by the name of Joey Shanks who does some incredible stuff with milk and a glass plate in his garage in the middle of the jungle. He lives in... I think North Carolina somewhere, and he lives out kind of in the boonies. Uh, but and and we've featured Joey several times, but he has learned this technique, and there are videos included on the Planet 5D article that's linked in the show notes 
uh, it shows you how he does these awesome things. And he actually works for PBS and works on all of their shows where they're doing astronomy and cosmic kind of stuff. And, and they want to have a picture or a, say a, a moving image of a nebula. Well, we obviously don't have those kind of things uh, because nebula don't move that quickly. But he does these things in a, an incredible way with milk and iodine and different kinds of homemade chemicals. If you, I shouldn't say homemade, but things you can have around the house, household chemicals. And his work is being featured on major, major TV shows on PBS and, and other places. And it's just fascinating to me. I wanted to show this because we continually think that so much of this stuff is done in major Hollywood productions. And Joey has made a massive name for himself. And like I said, he works for PBS constantly. And he does this in his garage with things that cost you virtually nothing. And he shows you how to do it. It's, it's awesome. Go, go look at Joey's channel. Um, Joey Shanks is his name. And it's just fascinating to see. I, I know, DJ, you do tons of do-it-yourself kind of things with cameras and computers. And I just thought this would fit in with your audience that they should know more about Joey and how he does stuff. Because it's, it, to me, it's a very inspiring to be able to do this stuff for pennies as opposed to billions. Yeah, and it's, it's also interesting that he's shooting at 50 megapixel and uh, cropping in a bit. The, the style and the design and, and going through all the steps was, was interesting watching the video. Um, I never actually really put much thought into how they shot nebulas in any of these stargazing shows. Uh, it's very interesting that this would be the practical effect as opposed to you know, some sort of CGI or computerized right. effect. And, exactly. and I had just assumed that was what was going on. So really cool, really interesting. Thanks for that one, Mitch. I think everybody should go take a closer look because when you can do something in your garage, I mean, that makes it easily accessible to everybody. Yeah, and it's, and it's fun. <laughs> uh, Even are, your kids can do it. All right, on that note, Mitch... I think we're ready to end the show. Where can people find you, sir? Planetmitch.com. There's also a planetmitch.com. If anybody really wants to see some of the stuff that I do that never gets publicized on Planet 5D. I did a senior shoot last week, which was a lot of fun for a friend of my daughter's and my daughter. And I just featured that over on planetmitch.com. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, I try to keep my... Uh movie escapades off of DSLR film noob simply because no one wants to see bloodied up corpses and decapitated people and pipes going through heads. It's a, uh, it's a little, no. a little violent, <laughs> a little violent. Uh, on that note, guys, you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. Uh, we found out that it was actually labeled DSLR film noob thanks to a typo and that has since been corrected that's my fault right here this guy fat fingered an m and an n so if you couldn't find it before now you can and <laughs> of course make sure to like subscribe and write a review on itunes because that helps us out a lot you guys take care and we will see you next time on another exciting episode of dslr film noob podcast Bye.